Thank you, Aaron. Good morning, everyone. Well, that last verse will jar your preserves, won't it? Yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, but before we get there, uh, I've been gone a while. So uh, those of you who are new to the church in the last uh, three or four weeks, you're going, who's this guy? So uh, I'm actually, my name is Frank Switzer. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. I've been gone the last three Sundays. Um, in the last 20 years, I've been gone three Sundays in a row from church. This was the second time, um, only the second time in the last 20 years, um, and it, the reason is because every summer, many of you know, uh, I teach at a camp in Iowa, but also this summer, our youngest daughter got married, and so we kind of strung all of that together, <coughs> but it did require me to be gone uh, for three Sundays, but also, I knew it would be okay, uh, frankly, and I don't say this condescendingly at all, I knew it would be okay because we had really great preaching in my absence. Um, every Sunday morning, my son blew up, uh, my son. I still feel like a guest preacher in my own stinking home church, I gotta tell you. So it's just a little bit weird, you know, this new building and everything, I'm a little behind the curve. Anyway, my cell phone, my cell phone was just blowing up with how well uh, these guys did and we really appreciate it. Um, at the camp though, I discovered something. For the first time ever at the camp, I wore a t-shirt that was Redemption Arcadia and, and uh, the, the uh, director of the camp walked up and saw the shirt, and he looked at it, and he goes, Redemption Arcadia? <clears throat> and it kind of stuck, so we have a new name. <laughs> we are Redemption Arcadia. So, anyway. Biggest question I've gotten, the most common question I've gotten um, since I got back is, well, what's it like to have a son-in-law now? And uh, I said, well, it's really made me a much more sensitive person. <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> no. Here's what I discovered. I kind of thought maybe I was offloading a responsibility. <laughs> no, I gained an additional responsibility. That's kind of how that all works, so... Uh, anyway, the wedding was great. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. I know that you can troll Facebook and find some wedding pictures uh, that and a lot of people have been texting. It was really good. Um, I will say that I'll give you one highlight from the, um, the reception. Um, the father of the bride, bride dance was done to um, Casey and the Sunshine Band's boogie shoes because I'm a 70s funk rock guy. I love 70s funk rock, and of course, I did the white man's overbite. <laughs> Can you erase that part of the videotape, please? Because that's a problem. Anyway, it was a good time. Well, all of that to just say um, that's about as light as we're going to be the rest of this morning. We're doing Psalm 137. Uh, I mentioned this before. I talked to some of the other redemption pastors. They're in agreement. It's really hard to do a series on the Psalms and do it honestly and, and skip Psalm 137. This is some hard, hard stuff. And you just heard Aaron read it. Uh, this Psalm is emotional and it's theological, both, together. And, and you need to understand we run from neither of those things. We run from neither of those things. We, we embrace them. We, we, we want to deal with both of those things. So how we're going to unpack this today and, and look at it, <clears throat> in, in a sense, uh, this is a little bit going to be like a topical sermon because we're going to talk a lot about suffering today. We promised that we would do that during the Psalms, 
and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, what we're going to do is I want to I take us through the psalm uh, a little bit more slowly than just reading it, and we'll give some context and meaning to the psalm, the historical context, the meaning of some of the words there. Uh, and then we're just going to apply, 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 and apply. So the psalm has three stanzas. By the way, Wednesday night I was at the, <coughs> I spoke for just a few minutes at the last parenting class Wednesday night, and then when I was done I said, uh, hey, I would really encourage you to be here Sunday morning because we're doing Psalm 137. It's a really important psalm to understand. And I was asked by one of the parents at the class, they said, well, did you memorize it? <laughs> and I said, of course not. It's nine verses. Who could possibly memorize nine verses? That's just, you have to be a superman to be able to do that. So anyway, here are the three stanzas. The, the first three verses set the historical context of the psalm. The second three verses deals with the question, what do we do in the midst of our suffering? And both of these first two stanzas contain lament, mourning, and grief. A and strong lament, mourning, and grief brought about by the suffering and injustice that's been perpetrated in many ways against the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon. And then the third stanza expresses the raw anger brought about by the suffering and asks for judgment and vengeance against the agents of Israel's exilic suffering. And Psalm 137 expresses both individual and communal suffering. Which, which really helps us understand that it's dealing with the reality of life. The, I would say the vast majority of suffering is experienced individually, though m some suffering is experienced communally, but the vast majority of suffering, especially as a pastor that I deal with, is, is engaged usually individually, but it must be engaged in community. Isolation and suffering, while Feeling right, and I'll talk more about this, is not the right thing to do. It, I, suffering really should be engaged in community, and Scripture's very clear about this in several different places. You shouldn't do this in isolation. Here's the big idea for today. Uh, very pithy. Suffering stinks, but it's real and it has purpose. Suffering stinks. Can I get an amen? But it's real and it has purpose. So look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. Let me... <clears throat> read those. I would title this, these three verses, Historical Context and Grief. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, when we remembered Dru Judah, when we remembered our, our home. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, their musical instruments, they uh, hung them on the trees. For there our captors, the Babylonians, required as, of us songs and our tormentors, the Babylonians, they required mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So these three verses describe the great Babylonian exile that occurred from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. Uh, Jerusalem in 605, 597, and 587, three different times, are sacked by the Babylonians, and tens of thousands of Jews are literally carried back to Babylon and given a place in the region of Babylon to set up and live their life there from now on, 700 miles away from Jerusalem, 700 miles from their home. And this is back when you had to walk the 700. It was a long, long way 
away. And so they're captives of war. But interestingly enough, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, writes the captives a letter while they're there. Now remember, they're, they're prisoners of war. They're captives of war. They've been completely displaced. They're away from their home. And Jeremiah writes them this letter when they're there. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So here's what God's saying. He's saying, I've judged you because you ran away from me. You ran away from my love. You ran away from what I'm calling you to be my people, you ran away from that, so I warned you for hundreds and hundreds of years that this would happen, and now it's happened. And I've used the Babylonians as my instrument of judgment against you, and now you're there. So now that you're there, here's what he's saying. You need to live your life. This is the new normal. This is where you have to be. And what I find fascinating about this passage in Jeremiah is that it's not just the call of God on their life to do what he's asking them to do. Many times we look at God and, and we look at his word and we look at what he's trying to call us to do and we feel like, <clears throat> this is our duty. I don't want to do this. It's, it's probably not going to work out that well and that's why I don't really want to do it, but God's calling me to do it, so I better just hunker down and do it. But look at that last verse, that verse 7 there, where he says, pray for the welfare of the city and help build up the city by your presence because in their welfare, you will find your welfare. I want you to hear this. There is practicality to what God calls us to as well. Yes, it's God, the Lord, calling us. And it's going to be hard. This, this idea that if God has called you, it's going to be easy. What a myth that is. It's going to be hard. But remember, there's also a practical side to God's calling He's saying, you know, if you improve this city by your presence, hey, New Testament 21st century American church, if you improve this city by your presence, your welfare will also be improved. There is a practical side to God's call on our lives. Well, that's a little rabbit hole that I ran down, but I just wanted to mention it to you. But in the reality, is, it's not easy. You're away from home. This would be like some army coming on and lifting us up out of Phoenix and moving us to Houston. What a miserable time that would be, okay? So I'm kidding. Sorry. I lived in Houston for a year. It was the longest seven years of my life, and just, that's why I can say that. But the Babylonians, remember, were still their captives, their captors, and they were their tormentors. So they didn't know they were being used as an instrument of judgment by God, and so they were just doing what they do. They were conquering other people. And of course, they went probably a little bit too far, and they tormented them. 
Now, the author of this psalm was likely not there at the beginning of the exile. He was probably born there in exile and then was part of uh, the group uh, of, of Israelites who in 539 under King Cyrus was allowed to move back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding Jerusalem. And he's probably writing this psalm from Jerusalem in the wake of remembering of what it was like in Babylon. And what he recalls is the fact that life has seasons. Amen? How many of you were around in the 60s for that bird song? Okay? Yeah, it's just, Ecclesiastes, just taking Ecclesiastes and making money off of it. But it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. When you are in exile, when you're a prisoner of war, it is a season of mourning. It's a season of weeping and grief. It's a time of lament. And, and it's a time of difficult of difficult living. And so they didn't sing their songs of praise and worship and joy and gratitude. Instead, they mourned. They hung their instruments in the trees and left them there. Now, I don't know if they literally went and hung their instruments in trees. I would guess that it's more like a poetic way of saying that they took their instruments and put them away as long as they were in Babylon. They're not going to play their instruments as long as they're in Babylon. Yet what was happening was their captors, the Babylonians, would come and they would mock them and they'd make fun of them. And they'd say, ha ha, we're your captors. We're in charge of you. We are the boss of you. Play us a dirge. Play us, play us a song. Play, entertain us. Hum, humiliate yourselves before us and let that be our entertainment. The psalmist calls this mirth. Mirth is another word for mocking and tormenting. So they brought their mirth. So some of you are old enough like me to remember uh, the old Western movies where uh, you know, you're in a saloon and the guy with a gun would get a gun and he'd look at the guy standing over there and he'd start shooting at his feet and yell, dance, dance for me, you know. That's a picture of what's going on here. And then verses four through six, this is the deliberations in the midst of suffering. Now they're delivering, deliberating. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So here's what the psalmist is saying here. To give in to the persecutors, to go ahead and sing these songs under their terms would be to forget God and turn away from him and this is considered a tragedy even bigger than the Babylonian captivity. They're saying that we would rather endure the Babylonian captivity than to turn our backs on God. So suddenly they've been jolted back into the reality of who God is. Now they're thinking, okay, I think we need to take God seriously. It's a call to never forget because this is not their home. Babylon is not their home. Babylon is an address, but it's not their home. And I want you to know that that theme carries over into uh, the New Testament, into who we are as Christians. Think of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. Many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction their God is their belly, their God is their fleshly desires, and they've set their minds on doing whatever they want to do at any expense. They've set their minds on earthly things. And then he says this, but our, he's writing us today as well. 
our citizenship is in heaven. You understand that we, we live here in the world right now, but we are, in a sense, we're dual citizens. We live here, but our citizenship is in heaven. If you're in Christ, your citizenship is in the new Jerusalem that is coming. And from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body and be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. You know, 1 Peter, Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you, <clears throat> here you go, as sojourners and exiles. You ever feel like you don't fit in this world, in this culture, the way things are? Do you ever feel like that? That's because you're a sojourner. You're, you're an exile. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which would wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the plight of every Christian. We're exiles, in a sense. It doesn't mean that we don't sing. We sing every Sunday morning, and I like it. I, I love that. But we do realize that there is suffering, there's persecution, there's challenges. But we do not forget Jesus. We stand firm. So the psalmist is saying, it would be better for me to lose my ability to play and sing. It would be better if my left hand, my playing hand was cut off. It would be better if my tongue should stick to the roof of my mouth and I'd never be able to sing again. Something that I love to do, it would be better for me to lose something that I love to do than to forget God. So in other words, in the midst of suffering, run to God. Push deeper into God. Inquire of God. Lament to God. Cry out to God. And seek his people. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of challenges, you and I are not to run from the community of God that he has given us. We are to run to that community. We are to run to the church. And if the church doesn't want you running to it in the midst of suffering, find another church. Find another church. See, our natural tendency in the midst of suffering is to withdraw, right? It's to move away. The geographical solution to all my problems. I'm going to move to Montana. There's sin in Montana, too, let me tell you that. Our, our natural tendency is to go into isolation. Our natural tendency is to become embittered and resentful. That's not what we're called to. Although it feels right, it feels right to do that, it gets us nowhere, and in fact, doing that just damages us further. It makes it worse for us. And the call of the church, here you go, now I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to me, I'm talking to us, those who lead the church. The call of the church is to be proactive in the midst of suffering. Proactive. We are to be there, ready to minister. And that's individual and corporate suffering. There's no differentiation between either. Individual, corporate suffering, our call is to be there. Paul says, we rejoice with those who rejoice, amen? But what else? We weep with those who weep. That's Romans. In, in 2 Corinthians, he says we, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, he says we suffer with those who suffer and we celebrate with those who celebrate. Both. All right, here you go. Here come the nasty verses. Now, this is a prayer. These last three verses, it's a prayer of emotion, anger, and vengeance. 
Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones, literally your infants, and dashes them against the rock. In these verses, the psalmist calls on God to execute his vengeance and his judgment against their oppressors. It's known as an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of imprecation. It's a prayer that asks for God's judgment against and justice for injustices, against evil. It's a call to punish evil by God. And this is graphic. Wouldn't you say this is graphic? This is graphic stuff right here. And notice how the psalmist includes the Edomites with the Babylonians. Why is this? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, the nation of Edom had been kind of a thorn in the side of Jerusalem for literally centuries. Uh, During the Exodus, which was nearly a thousand years earlier, they stood by and made the Exodus, the exit from Egypt, even harder on the Israelites than it needed to be uh, like 900 years earlier. But more specifically, in this instance, as the prophet Obadiah records, the Edomites were literally standing on the sidelines while Babylon was thrashing Jerusalem and thrashing the Israelites. They were standing on the sidelines cheering on the Babylonians, urging them on, go, get them, sick them, sick them. Edom's national vision for success just take down the Jews. That's it. That was, their, that was their mission statement as a nation. Take down the Jews. Take down the Jews. Now, a lot of people who look at verse 9, <clears throat> they want to find a way to explain it away, to become an apologist for God, because it's really, really harsh. Lots of people try to do this. And one way to do this is to, here you go, <clears throat> let's investigate the original language. Let's get out the Hebrew text and and do studies and find, what does it really say in Hebrew? It must say, it's got to say something different. We just need to understand. So I think that's a good idea. So I did my due diligence. I studied hard. I took Hebrew in seminary. I know the alphabet. (laughs) So I studied really, really hard. I looked at it. Here's what it says in the original language. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's what it says. You know, we're always looking for a way to soften this stuff. I I love what James Adams writes in one of his essays. Here you go. Wrong ideas of God and his honor have led many to become what I would term evangelistic plastic surgeons. They have made it their job to clean up God's word according to their own ideas of what is proper. Now, who's God in that scenario? The person who wants to clean up after God. So to develop a correct understanding of verse 9, as well as the entire psalm, what we have to do is consider two things. Number one, we must consider the emotional force, the reality of the emotional force of this psalm, and we need to embrace that. And then we need to press into the theological point that the psalmist is trying to make here, that God is actually making through the psalmist. And we've, we've done a lot of, number one, we've looked at the emotion of this psalm, we've acknowledged the emotional force of it, 
In fact, I would say there's no psalm more emotional than Psalm 137. And and here you go. Uh, Consider this. While grief is a much more acceptable emotion than rage and revenge, Psalm 137 reminds us that in reality, grief and raw anger are often inseparable. Amen? We never should gloss over that. Should acknowledge that as a reality. So let's deal a little bit more now with factor number two, the theology. In the background of verses eight and nine, but especially nine, especially nine, is what's known as the principle of talion. Talion is the idea, an ancient Hebrew idea derived from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21. It's the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You dashed our infants against the rocks. We would like your infants now to be dashed against the rocks. Now remember, the Babylonians were God's instrument of justice against his people, his people who had willingly and gleefully walked away from God's law and love. But in the execution of God's judgment, again, remember, they didn't know that, that God didn't go to the Babylonians and said, hey, I have an assignment for you. He just did it. But in the execution of it, the Babylonians had done this exact thing with some of the Jewish infants. They had done this. And, and here's, this is going to be really hard for some of us. This is really, I just, I'm just telling you, this is really, really hard, I know. But you need to study history to understand what's going on here. Infant dashing was a common part, a common part of ancient warfare practiced by many people. A common part. So here you go. This is going to shock some of you, I think, based on some of the things that I read online. But in ancient times, war was not conducted civilly. <laughs> and now we laugh, but believe me, believe me, there are people who think there's a way to conduct war in a nice and courteous way. Well, if we're going to do it, we're going to be nice about it. I, I think this is a, is a fairly, I'm just telling you, this is a fairly silly ideological paradox. We're, we're going to go to war against you, but we're going to make sure that we don't hurt anybody. Okay? This is, listen, war is war. My father was in World, world War II. Front lines for three years. And he says, war, nothing original. War is what? Hell. All's fair in love and war. I'll tell you, talking about, I'm sorry, talking about this just kind of makes, reminds me of something. I think Mark Twain was the one who said it once. Um, he said, um, you know, truth is like poetry, and most people hate poetry. <coughs> so. But in ancient times, especially, women and children were not considered at all. They weren't considered. They, you know, a, a king or a, or a warrior general leading an army didn't care where he was going and who he was going to kill. He was just going to crush, just going to crush the opposition. So now the prayer... This verse 9, here you go. While literal, in the sense that infant dashing was a reality in ancient times, that part is literal, we need to remember it's also a rhetorical device known as synecdoche. The the psalmist is not saying, literally, here's how you're going to punish them. Just 
just go find their infant's God and dash them against rocks. It's, it's synecdoche, which means a, a little small thing represents the bigger idea. And the bigger idea is that the psalmist is saying to God, please execute your justice against these people. Please root out evil and unrighteousness and fix it in your way and in your time. This is really important to understand. The psalmist is not asking for permission for the Israelites to do this. He's asking God to please carry out his justice in his time. That's what he's praying. He's not interested in going and doing this to the Babylonians. It's Romans 12 where Paul says, listen, you need to be careful about this vengeance thing because God says vengeance is mine. We are not to execute vengeance. Okay? And remember, this prayer is asking for God to do something that the prophets, most especially Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, had predicted would come about anyway in the end. God wins. It's the old bumper sticker. I can predict the future. God wins. The prophets had said, this is what's going to happen in the end. And the psalmist knows this. Look at verse 8. The doom of Babylon would come, but it would come at the hands of God, not the Israelites. So the psalmist is praying in white, hot emotion that God would expedite this judgment. Now Christians who will be and are persecuted and treated unjustly we're really called not to engage in revenge. Here's what we're called, and this is hard, I know. Here's what we're called to. We're called to lament and pray and trust God. And surely this is not easy. And thus, we have anguish and grief and lament, and yes, even anger in some of our situations. I'm a good Christian. I don't get angry. You don't have a real strong understanding of the gospel. I think God can handle your anger. I think he can handle it. This is a matter of faith and trust. No way we can get around this. And, and here's something that I think will be a little bit hard to, to deal with too because it was for me when I first read about this. How many of you pray the Lord's Prayer? You may not want to raise your hand. <laughs> I pray the Lord's Prayer. Okay, Think about that prayer. Such a nice prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the next line. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think you're saying when you pray that? What do you think it's going to look like when God's will is executed on earth? Cupcakes and muffins, man. <laughs> Here's what you're praying when you pray that prayer. This is, by the way, look, you know, the great reformer Martin Luther, he wrote an, an essay about this. Okay, here's what you're praying. You're praying Psalm 137. Because there are people who are wicked, evil, and unrighteous, and who do not believe in God, and when he comes again, it's going to be a bad day for them. So what do you think you're praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer? You're praying Psalm 137, in a sense. God says he's going to do this, and he's going to do it in his time. And the biblical teaching and, and, and the reality is that it's going to be rough. I, I want to quote Miroslav Wolf, the great European theologian. It's a long, long quote, 
and, and if you have, ca again, I, this, occasionally I say this, if you have caffeine with you, take a sip, you'll need it for this quote, okay? I, I want you to really try to focus now on this quote. It's a long quote, but I think it says something very important that we need to understand. He writes this, <coughs> my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence by humans requires a belief in divine vengeance. Requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will surely be unpopular with many in the West, you know, like Americans. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. But violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And then he goes on to say this. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, the idea, this idea, will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Wow. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He's a little bit pithier than Miroslav. He says it this way, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. So I want to I close today with a little discussion, expand this discussion on suffering. We've touched on it. At times we've taken it on directly, but I want to close with this, and this will take about 12 minutes to work our way through. There, there is actually an academic discipline dedicated to the study um, of the attempt to understand the nature and actions of God in the face of evil and suffering. It's called theodicy, theodicy. Attempting to understand the nature and actions of God in the face of evil and suffering. And here's what you're trying to understand when you study theolo uh, theodicy. God is sovereign, right? He's God, he's in charge of everything. He knows everything, he can do whatever he wants. He's all powerful, all, all, always present and all knowing. And yet there is suffering. So when you look at the sovereignty of God and human suffering, man, that's really hard to reconcile. Amen? This is what theodicy is, is attempting to study. So here we go. Ultimately, all suffering, ultimately all suffering is the result of sin, either directly or indirectly. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the created order, and it's perfect, right? It's paradise. It's wonderful. But then Genesis 3, sin entered the human condition and disordered the created order. And here's what happened. It disordered our relationship, our four key relationships. Sin did this to us. First of all, it disordered our relationship with ourselves. We don't even have a trustworthy relationship with ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand them? That's a result of sin. We can't even hardly be in relationship with ourselves. Anybody in this room ever say, why did I do that? 
We're also disordered in relationship with others. What would it be like to be able to fully and completely at all times, with no exceptions, trust everybody around us? Those of you in the marketplace know that this is impossible. Why? Sin. Every context, family, church, school. Our relationship with God certainly broken. What's the first response after the sin? What did the man and the woman do? They ran and hid. So their relationship with God was broken. Here you go. I, I just, I, I, I've kind of wondered this. What would it have been like if after they had done their sin and, they re, and this, you know, their eyes were open and they're standing there and they go, oh man, we messed this up. What if when God came walking in the cool of the day as he did every single day, what if instead of running and hiding and putting on um, fig leaves, okay, what if instead they had run directly to God and said, we, we messed up, man. We, we, we confess. We disobeyed. We're sorry. What if they had done that? Now, doesn't this kind of sound like your own sin, too? What is our first response when we sin? It's usually to hide and run away. And God says, no, no, no. Come to me. Come to me. And then, of course, it disordered our relationship with creation itself. We're just ruined the way we treat. And I'm not an environmentalist at all. I have a blue shirt on, not green. I'm telling you. But we just, we don't treat our natural resources well. So generally, all suffering comes from the disorder of God's created order because of sin, including disease, things like that. Okay, why does my 91-year-old mother have Alzheimer's? Ultimately, it's because of sin. Cancer, sin. Natural disasters, sin. Physical death itself. But also think about the damage that sin in relationship has done. How many of you have been damaged by the sin of somebody else in a relationship? Anybody in this room? The sin that damages ourselves. Perhaps substance abuse comes to mind. Or pornography. Pornography is interesting because not only does it damage you, but it also dehumanizes the other. And because of sin, we suffer because we all have trouble trusting others. And here you go, we all want to control others. Do you understand our desire to control other people is based in sin? That's just sin manifesting itself. But suffering actually serves humanity in a couple of ways. First of all, suffering acts as a warning to unbelievers that perhaps God is real and he's the answer to all those life questions you've been asking yourself. You ever noticed how... uh, when we have a chronic pain somewhere in our body, we go to a doctor and seek a doctor. Okay, that makes sense, right? Okay. Well, you know what? It makes sense with God, too. Go to him. And second of all, the truth is, there's, there's a lot of suffering that is very simply the consequence of the sin that we have committed ourselves. This is known as, here's another term for you, this is known as ironic justice. There's actually an academic term for this, ironic justice. It's when you suffer as a result of the sin that you have committed. Ironic, isn't that ironic that you went and did this thing that you thought would bring you all this pleasure and maybe in the moment it did, but now you're suffering all the consequences. That's ironic justice. And all of us, no matter how hard we try to blame others or blame God for our sin, All of us have suffered as a result of our own sin. So, some of you are sitting there going, this has been so inspirational this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. Sunday morning has never been better. 
Is there anything good that comes of this? Actually, a lot. And this is here, here I'm going to wrap. Five, five things. And, and I'll tell you, uh, I'm, I'm not like excited to present these to you, but I'm hoping that they will help. Okay? So here you go. Number one. As I said in the first week of the Psalm series, suffering ultimately drives us to God. We find our peace, our solace, our shalom in God and God alone. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, bring your requests, all of them, even if they're requests that are filled with complaint and anger, bring your request boldly and confidently to God's throne of grace. Boldly and confidently to God's throne of grace. See, the problem is, is that while the, the world, the world, while very wonderful in many ways, after all, God created it, amen? While wonderful in many ways, it is not the answer to our ultimate problems. It's just not. Lots of good stuff in the world, but when we elevate stuff in the world to God's status, that's when we get into trouble. The world will not provide us, ultimately, with the answers and the peace that we seek. That only comes in Christ, and so we seek God. Number two. Suffering leads to discipline and instruction. Did you know that we learn from suffering? How many of you in the midst of suffering have said, well, I'll never do that again? You just learned something. <laughs> so, so suffering leads to discipline and instruction. Again, the book of Hebrews. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Yet later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Number three, suffering is a part of being conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus. You know, I know, I know this is, a, we all desire all the benefits of Jesus. Yay, Jesus. My friend, nice guy. I like most of his teaching. We all desire the benefits of Jesus. What we, what we so often forget, though, is that those benefits did not come without a cost. Do you understand that life resurrection, new creation comes through what? The cross, death. We have to die first before we have resurrection. It's the old saying, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And a large part of being conformed to his image, something that Paul tells us that God is doing in Romans chapter 8, is to embrace and even count the sufferings of Christ as a privilege. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ, yes. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And usually we're good with that. Oh, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then the next clause. And I want to participate in his sufferings. <sighs> you were going so well there, Paul. The power of the resurrection, and I want to participate in his sufferings. And then he says, and I want to become like him in his death. That's what he writes in Philippians 3. That's the way... To resurrection. J. Bowes writes this, there is no saint in the Bible of whose history we have any lengthened record who is not called to endure trouble in some form. You want sainthood? There's going to be trouble. Number four, suffering coaches us and builds into us perseverance and maturity. When do you and I build character the most? When, when everything is easy and comfortable? I can tell you right now, when I am sitting on my couch in my fat pants, eating my Cheetos and drinking my Diet Mountain Dew, I am not building character, amen? 
building a Cheeto stomach. That's what I'm building. We build character in the midst of tribulation, trial. That's what raises us up. That's what coaches us. That's the whole idea of, of disciplining and training and athletics. Tribulation and suffering are God's gifts of perseverance and maturity to us. James says it like this. Consider it all joy, my beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds, all kinds of trials. Trials, tribulation, challenges, temptation, suffering. When you encounter all of it, consider of all joy when you encounter all of those things. Why? Because the testing of your faith, there's the gospel, Jesus at the center of this, the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance, maturity, endurance, patience, steadfastness. That's what it produces in us. Suffering is a big part of our sanctification. Many say it like this, the purpose of, of suffering is for our good and for God's glory. And then number five, suffering is the way of Jesus and it's the way to life. You know, Jesus suffered and he suffered unjustly. Remember that, he suffered unjustly. Yet the cross is the gateway to his life, the resurrection. Thomas Brooks, I think, puts it beautifully. Persecution and suffering brings death in one hand and life in the other, for while it kills the body, it crowns the soul. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is, this is a hard word. Oh my goodness, this is a hard word. And really, the only way that this word can be understood and applied to our lives is by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we just entreat your Holy Spirit to move all of us out of the way and to see your truth and your life in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.